9, 12, 10, 28, 2, 23. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello and welcome to a special episode of Deep State Radio in which we're going to be talking about very important issue right now, election security, where things stand, where things are likely to go. We've got three experts. Two of our experts are folks that you know very well from our regular podcasts, one of whom is Rosa Brooks, who's in Alexandria, Virginia right now, in her very comfortable work chair um, that reclines electronically and from which she views the entire world strategically. How are you today, Rosa? I'm fine, David. I, I, I prefer to think of it as a chair office. It's like a complete office in a chair. A chaffice. A chaffice. Chaffice. That's awesome. Yeah. I like that. And that's where that's where that's where we will find Rosa. David Sanger, uh, we will find, as we sometimes do, in Vermont in a beautiful farmhouse on on happy Sanger acres surrounded by cows and bears and all sorts of other wildlife. Uh, David Sanger, of course, with the New York Times. Hi, David. How are you? I'm good. I'm actually up here because Rosa told me to start if I was going to like have a really good underground tunnel and we couldn't get a, a missile silo, you know, I should start digging now. So I, I decided to come up while, while it was raining and the ground was soft. Yeah. Before the frost, very yeah. hard in Vermont after yeah. the frost. Yeah. And a new guest, uh, Jennifer Cohn, who's an election security advocate and writer, also an attorney. Uh, hi, Jennifer. Welcome. You are in where right now in the West coast. I'm, I'm in Oakland, California. Ah, well, Oakland, California. Well, um, uh, so we've got a lot of ground covered here. I think, uh, although all of you have been doing great work in this area recently, uh, I'm going to kick things off with uh, Mr. Sanger, uh, because you guys have just uh, got a a new story out on this, or I, I guess the story posted yesterday on perception hacks and other potential threats mm-hmm. to the election that you did with Nicole Perlroth. Uh, you've been following this issue for a while. What do you see as looming threats that are most consequential? So here's the good news. Want to start with some good news, David, okay. since we so yeah. rarely do that on Deep State, but yeah, but, you uh, know, yeah. it's not usually our, our MO. Um, the good news is we're five days out and we haven't really seen a big hack directed at voters. The closest thing we've seen so far have been those uh, emails that were sent to a couple hundred voters in um, Florida and Alaska, maybe a few other places, that the director of national intelligence immediately ran out to attribute to the Iranians. Um, these, Whether they were Iranian or not, and I have no reason to suggest his attribution was wrong, they weren't the most sophisticated. Well, other things. than the fact that he lies all the time. Yeah, but in this particular case, I think he was downplaying what the Russians are doing, but I, I think this was Iranian. But if you read the emails, um, the wording was so clumsy. The threat was, you know, sort of so strange that, as one person put it to me so well, it read like it had been written by the scriptwriters for a Borat movie. 
Um, so um, uh, it, it wasn't the smoothest thing we've ever seen them do. Um, we have seen the Russians move their sort of A team of hackers, a group called Energetic Bear, sometimes called Dragonfly, uh, to focus not on the utility sector, the energy sector, as they have for many years, but in at state and local governments, but oddly, not at the election infrastructure. We only found two places where they seem to hit it somewhat incidentally. And everything else we've seen, ransomware and so forth, looks right now to be the work of individuals. Now, the next five days are critical. If you were going to pull off a significant infrastructure hack, you wouldn't do it until the last moment. But I think there's sort of a growing view in the intelligence community that the Russians may have concluded that they achieved most of their goal by sending us running around a lot looking for these things, and that they are holding their fire to see if it is a close election. Because if it is, they think they can probably be more useful blowing up small things into big ones that President Trump might uh, tout as evidence of of uh, election fraud. And that's what the key of perception hacks. Um, you don't need to hack all of Wisconsin or all of Minnesota or Pennsylvania or any other um, uh, battleground state. You just need to get into a few locations to make people think that you're in much more broadly. And that creates the perception you're more powerful than you are. And I think at this point, that's what people are worried about the most. Well, Jennifer, you uh, track elections uh, as closely as anybody. You're a very active presence writing about this, tweeting about this, flagging problems within the system. Is that what's worrying you the most? Um, perception attacks are not what's worrying me the most, although I think that is a worry, certainly a legitimate and significant worry. I worry that they could actually, Russia or domestic actors or others could actually be in a position to change vote tallies. And I also worry that we don't have a sufficiently transparent election system where we can assume that even if our government is able to determine whether tallies have been altered, which is not clear, frankly, even if they're able to determine that, whether they would tell us, we don't have any guarantee of that. And I say that based on the lack of transparency to this day around what happened in 2016. Um, okay, how does, that, how does that dovetail with your concerns, uh, Rosa? No, I, I, I mean, I share the same concerns and, and I'm not an election security expert by, by any stretch of the imagination, but, but obviously I've spent a fair amount of time in the last few months thinking about things that could go wrong and and I think that the the information slash mission misinformation slash disinformation environment is in many ways one of the most troubling aspects of all of this. And and part of the problem is, as Jennifer suggests, is that we don't share we 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 meaning we Americans we we neither share a a sense that there is a common trusted source, uh, nor do we universally or even mostly or even partially, I think collectively think that we can trust the government, whether at the local level or at the national level. Um, and so we are constantly being bombarded with, with uh, stories, um, 
some of which say everything is absolutely fine, stop being such paranoid idiots, some of which say everything is completely broken, this election is going to be stolen, and, and we have that on both the right and the left, obviously. Um, um, uh, some, some of those stories have a little bit more reality-based backing than others. Um, you know, we, we have the President of the United States suggesting that the mail-in votes will be unreliable or that there will be massive voter fraud. We have actual examples, albeit not a ton of them, of real interference with, with voting mechanisms. Um, and we certainly know that there's the, the prospect of, of much more of that. So I think for ordinary people, it's, it's among other things, it's just, it's very confusing. It's very hard to know whether we're facing a massive crisis or a trivial problem. Um, and, you know, I don't know the answer to that either. I mean, I think Jennifer and David probably have a, a clearer sense of that. Um, I also don't know whether if think, things could be fine, right? Things next week could be fine. The result could be clear. Um, you know, by Wednesday morning, we could all know. Everybody could be saying, oh, yeah, we got it. Here's what happened. We all agree. And, but, but even if things turn out fine, I, it will be hard to know whether that's because we just got massively lucky uh, or whether it was because things were fine all along. So, David. Um... You know, I, I'd like to pick up on what we've what we've just been hearing about here. It strikes me that prior to 2016, or or including 2016, by far the biggest uh, hack that we'd ever seen. America's experience with a hack was related to the Russian hack. But whatever the Russians have done so far, it really doesn't compare with what the beneficiary of that hack, Donald Trump, has done. I mean, the president says, "Don't trust the mail." And all of a sudden, you know, everybody goes, okay, I'm going to go out and vote in person. Um, his, his staff, you know, people like Ratcliffe are out there saying things like, you know, the hack is to benefit Biden. Um, they're, they're the primary spreaders of disinformation right now, aren't they? Well, certainly what we've seen since 2016, David, is a reversal of the president's incentives here on um, the perception of foreign interference. In 2016, he had to deny this, you know, Russia, 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 throughout his, um, his first term here. He has talked about the Russia hoax. When he's met with Putin, he said, I'm perfectly well convinced that, uh, that Putin's argument is correct and that the Russians are so good, so good at hacking that if they had been the ones in 2016, they never would have been would have been caught. And you may recall, after his first meeting with Putin in Hamburg, he even called me to make this argument, you know, over the phone, like, you know, as if he was looking for affirmation of, of the view. Um, in 2020, his incentives are completely the reverse. He's already said, in fact, I have it here in front of me, this, will, this election will be hacked. And the only way that he could lose is if someone cheats on behalf of Biden. Um, he sent out a tweet I've got in front of me from June 22, rigged 2020 election, millions of mail-in ballots will be printed by foreign countries and others. It will be the scandal of our times, as if merely printing the ballot would rig the election. And at other moments, he has said that the election is vulnerable to foreign interference because of those mail-in ballots. Um, 
So he has every incentive if it comes in very close on uh, Tuesday to claim that certain key states were defective in their votes and therefore the electors could not be counted because of some kind of interference, whether it's the mail-in ballot fraud domestically or foreign or some combination. And so we've all got to we've we've all got to um, look as skeptically to his claims of foreign interference in 2020 as we did as his denials in 2016. Okay. Well, one of the things that makes our system vulnerable uh, is when the uh, uh, election apparatus in our country is uh, accessible by internet and hackers are able to get into it. I recall after 2016, um, uh, we, we had some discussions uh, in which David Sanger emphasized the places that didn't have um, a paper trail and that needed to have a paper trail and, and, and so forth. How important is that issue, Jennifer, particularly since the president is you know, simultaneously saying, if the vote doesn't occur on election day, it may not be valid, which requires a certain degree of automation. It, it, it's a, it's, there's a kind of internal tension there. Okay, so, uh, thanks. Several things. I think that the Trump administration very much engages in narrative warfare type of propaganda where it is framing the election. And my take on its framing, I don't, I'd be interested if he actually used the word that the election will be hacked as opposed to rigged. For the most part, what I've seen from him is- He said, he said rigged by a yeah. yeah. For the That's okay. So for the most part, what I've seen from him is an attempt to deflect and ignore and pretend like hacking is not a concern. He wants to leave that. He wants everyone not looking there. He wants everyone looking at, at really um, overblown sort of fantastical claims about millions of um fabricated counterfeit mail ballots being generated in China and that's somehow getting into our system despite the fact that poll workers also dead people dead people vote a lot apparently right well dead yeah he would want he would want to look at that too but he's trying think, very much to steer the conversation away from hacking and I don't think yes perception warfare is a concern but it is also a concern that actual vote tallies can could actually be changed and I want to emphasize two things there Number one, there has never the risk of domestic attacks against our elections has always been there and has it has always been underpaid and it is a real risk. I interviewed Don Siegelman um, several times. First time was several months ago. He was the for, last Democratic governor in Alabama, and in his race for re-election, um, he had been governor, lieutenant governor, secretary of state, and attorney general. He was expected to win. In his election, Karl Rove was supporting his opponent. Uh, 6,000 votes disappeared from, he, he was declared victorious. And in one small Republican county, 6,000 votes disappeared from his total as posted outside the courthouse, which was locked at that point in the middle of the night. And it was from one precinct. And Carl Rove's client was the Alabama attorney general. And they seized the paper ballots so that nobody could count them and certified the result illegally, prematurely. Rove had already packed the courts in Alabama. And um, Siegelman is really the only former Democratic candidate of whom I'm aware that has actually said that his elect he feels that his election was stolen um, and that he suspects it. John Kerry waited a decade to say that he suspected his own election was stolen in 2004. And so there, anyone with direct access to the equipment or remote access 
could change an election and remote access was, even though the vendor, this is what I mean about lack of transparency, the vendors for years had denied that they installed remote access in their county central tabulators that aggregate precinct totals. And cybersecurity, Kim Zetter dropped a, this bomb on, on, it should have been a bomb, in, with an article that exposed that they finally admitted it when Senator Ron Wyden, an actual official, asked them that they had done that. And it turns out it was in 300 and they won't say where that was. And it could have very well been there in 2016. And then as far as foreign interference, um, internet connectivity, uh, Wisconsin, Florida, Michigan, in most of their counties have installed wireless modems starting in about 2015 that can, will connect both the precinct scanners and those county tabulators on the receiving end to the internet on election night. And that is just reckless behavior. It's, a, it's an enormous risk. But more than almost 30 experts, um, election security experts and election integrity groups, highly, highly respected, sent letters to all of the state officials in those states in September. And none of those three states responded to the letters. And that's a scandal. It doesn't mean it will be exploited, but it's unnecessary. And, you know, they, they spread, they, they listen to the vendors who tell them it doesn't connect to the internet rather than the experts who explain absolutely unequivocally that it does. So um, I'm just, my concern is that this election could be stolen totally or partly um, electronically and that we do, are not awake enough to recognize that possibility and that in 2016, for example, Russia apparently was in a position to alter vote tallies, according to David Scheimer's book, four senior Obama administration officials told him that. The public wasn't told that until his book came out. And I just am very concerned about this possibility. Can I ask a question, uh, Jennifer, of, of you and, and, and I think David, uh, David Sanger as well? Um, yes. How... To what degree do you think that there is consensus amongst experts who think hard about election security um, of, let, let, let's say we get through, we get through next week and it's okay, you know, and we, we say whatever happens, we say, yeah, there was messiness on the margins, but we think this was a, a valid result. Um, and let's just imagine. And okay. In an alternate universe, that that the president, whoever it may be, says, "My God, um, our whole electoral system is clearly a giant mess. Uh, it is vulnerable in a million ways, and I want to fix it. And I and I want to appoint you to to a commission to tell us what we need to do to fix it." Is there how much do you think that there is consensus amongst experts on on what we need to do? You know, is it is it clear? You know, here are the 10 things we need to do, or is this something where, well, yeah, here are five things clearly, but here's a bunch of stuff that we really have no idea how to handle. One part of it is clear. Everyone agrees that we need manual audits using a reliable paper trail. Every, all the experts agree with that, or um, I mean, virtually all, there's all gonna be a stray person somewhere. Um, that was supposed to be the centerpiece of our strategy for 22, for, for this election. And unfortunately, the, the type of audit that's considered meaningful is called a risk-limiting audit. It was developed by Professor Philip Stark at UC Berkeley, and he told me last week that only three states have, are going to require them in 2020, and that's Colorado, Rhode Island, and Vermont, and they only are requiring them for a few races. And, um, you know, Vermont is going to be after certification, so it won't have any legal teeth. 
So this is that is the only way really to know if electronic tallies have been changed according to experts. And we failed to get that implemented for 2020. And um, I think we will get audits going forward. The dispute is as to the meaning of a reliable paper audit trail. Most experts say hand-marked paper ballots are the way to go. A smaller subset are pretty happy with these new touch screens that put votes into barcodes and are susceptible to power failures and more complex and opaque. You can tell which side I'm on. I'm on the hand marked. But there is, even within the Democratic Party, Los Angeles County deployed these touch screens um, all over the county. They have to be activated by separate Wi-Fi connected poll books, which had connectivity issues, which made the whole system just melt down. So there is, there will still be a battle, even if the Democrats win, but at least we'll get audits. Uh Rosa, uh, Jennifer's absolutely right in in all that she laid out here. There are a couple of um, good pieces of news this election, and then a big agenda of things to do going forward. One is that the uh, sudden prevalence of mail-in ballots because of COVID has given us a much bigger base of hand-marked paper ballots than we ever would have had had COVID not happened. Mm-hmm. Now. Jennifer is absolutely right that if you don't have a system set up for actually doing a reliable audit of those, having the paper trail doesn't mean much if you don't use it. Mm-hmm. But we have it. And while it could take a while to go sort through, we've been through elections before, including 2000, where we had to go back and take time. And that was the danger in uh, Justice Kavanaugh's uh, suggestion the other day that you know everything had to be counted by uh, uh, election night. No, it doesn't. You know the right. you don't have to actually have it all counted until you have to actually certify uh, the vote and get your electors. Mm-hmm. Um, the uh, the second point uh, out of this that I think Jennifer was making earlier is that even if the election machines, the ballots are um, backed up. And right now, uh, DHS estimates that about 92% of the votes cast in this election will be associated in some way with a piece of paper, not necessarily hand-marked. Um, and that's an improvement up by about 10% from, uh, from 2016. Um, uh, that there are vulnerabilities in the reporting systems here. And that means obviously in registration systems, there's a vulnerability because those are uh, internet facing. You saw that Ron DeSantis, the governor of Florida, showed up to uh, vote on Monday and he discovered that some hacker had gone in and changed his address to West Palm Beach. Um, so, uh, which, you know, he was able to vote anyway, but if it was that easy for a single single hacker someplace in Florida to do, you can imagine what that would, how that would be versus the Russians or the Iranians. Um, but then there's the reporting problem. And that's where a lot of numbers get aggregated and where there is room to m- go mess around. And if you're wondering whether this has ever happened, just look at Ukraine, Putin's mm-hmm. Petri dish in 2014, when the Russians didn't bother going into the machines, they altered the actual reporting And while the Ukrainians caught them and reported it correctly, they caught them about 45 minutes before the results were going to be announced. In Russia, the fixed results were announced by Russian TV. Um, So that's another set of vulnerabilities we have to be looking at pretty carefully. So, Rosa, all of this depends on the, the, the good faith of the institutions and individuals overseeing it. 
you know, as in the, the story from Alabama that Jennifer just told, if you've got an attorney general that's not acting in good faith, and we saw this in Georgia uh, uh, in this Stacey Abrams election, um, uh, you've, you've got a problem. And then what do you do if you've got a problem? Well, then you go to the court. And if you go to the court and the court is not doing its job uh, or is acting in a partisan way, um, then that's a problem. And, you know, we, we saw that in, in Bush v. Gore to some extent. But, you know, now we're, you know, we've, we're in this interesting position where we've got this 6-3 Supreme Court. And although in the past couple of days we've had some decisions made by the court that have maintained uh, voting rights, there have been embedded in those decisions statements like the Kavanaugh one that David referred to and one by Alito that seem to indicate that they're reserving the right to go back in afterwards in a contested situation, perhaps come to a different solution or a different conclusion about whether or not to count those votes. Um, and it raises the possibility that unless the election is extremely clear cut, uh, if you aggregate up enough of these problems, uh, then, you know, bad actors, is, is overseers are in the court, could screw things up. Does that worry you? Um, it doesn't worry me as much as various other things worry me, frankly. I mean, I've said this before, and I'll, I'll say again, and I, I may be dead wrong about this, but but I, I do think that there are enough justices on the court who really do not want the court to be the decider as it was in, in 2000. Um, the Bush v. Gore decision did tremendous institutional damage to the court's reputation. Uh, it, it led to a to plummeting public confidence in the, in the court. I, I think there are enough institutionalists who would really rather see this get resolved by the political branches. That does not make it impossible, obviously, that the court does end up in a situation where they tip the balance one way, one way or the other. But but that that's actually the, so. It's not that I don't worry about that. It could happen. It's just not my biggest worry. I mean, my my biggest worry remains a constitutional impasse uh, at the congressional level, where the court does not weigh in with no clear means of resolving it combined with street level political violence, possibly combined with an effort by President Trump to use the quite substantial coercive forces of the executive branch at his disposal uh, to restore order, to safeguard ballots, to count the ballots, to do all kinds of crazy stuff. Um, so that's when I'm feeling scared and paranoid, um, the prospect of a, of a 6-3 court decision that tips the balance is, is, is lower down on my list of things that freak me out. By the way, Jennifer, if you don't listen to Deep State Radio regularly, um, almost everything freaks Rosa out. <laughs> so, I'm very you know, small. Except <laughs> us. I'm comfortable. She I'm looks calm. She looks calm. I feed her up. Oh my gosh, my sons are making noise in the background, and I don't have a taser on me. No, well, <laughs> okay, but well you take you can tase them in a minute. What do you think about Rosa's assessment just now? Um. Well, 
I am concerned about the court. Brett Kavanaugh, Chief Justice Roberts, and Amy Comey Barrett all helped the Bush campaign in 2000 one way or another in its anti-transparency campaign to stop the recount you know, in various capacities, um, which I think it was a very unethical thing for them to have done to stop the recount. Um, and I, I'm worried about down ballot races very much too. I am concerned that with so much focus on the presidency and I do it too, I have to remind myself that these down ballot races are so crucial this year. The chair of the Democratic Party in Ohio, David Pepper is just jumping up and down because the balance of the Ohio Supreme Court is, is hanging on this election. And um, I hate to say the name Karl Rove like he's the boogeyman, but he kind of is the boogeyman. He's you know, he smears people. He does everything. Nothing is off the table with him. You know, he, he'll call people pedophiles who aren't. He'll call them pedophiles. They are, but he sends people. He's horrible. So he's out there trying to smear um, Jennifer Brenner, who sort of ironically, this is coming up full circle. She is an election security champion who cleaned up Ohio after that 2004 election where the um, Secretary of State, Ken Blackwell, was a member of the Bush campaign, and he hired two Republican operatives to route the results through Tennessee, Ohio's results through Tennessee. And they did, the results did flip. Um, and there was a lawsuit against Karl Rove, and it got derailed when the key witness died in a plane crash. But I'm just very worried about these down ballot races. So like that Supreme Court race in Ohio, she was Secretary of State after Ken Blackwell cleaned up She's running for the Ohio Supreme Court. They can end gerrymandering, or we can end up with another decade of gerrymandering, which in turn can determine control of the House of Representatives to a very large extent for the next decade. So these state lawmakers and ju state judges are going to be voting on the new maps. And they're, even if we got audits of the presidency, or um, we are not going to have, there's no oversight over these down ballot races when weird things happen. There's just very little. And I know I sound down and glum, but I have a number of transparency, pro well, I'm working on a few transparency projects and I'm amplifying a few others. I have an article coming out, I hope tomorrow in the New York Review of Books, listing um, about seven transparency projects, their grassroots efforts to make up for where our um, Congress and state, state officials have fallen down on the job with audits and other transparency measures. So. Well, look, we've only got about two or three minutes left here. Um, and frankly, as I listen to this, and as I as I read about this, um, my mind gets a little bit boggled. Now, I'm going to save David Sanger the trouble of making <laughs> some kind of joke there about the the fragility of my mind, um, but 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 simply say, there's a possibility of foreign hacks. There's a possibility of domestic hacks. There's a possibility of voter suppression. There's a possibility of fiddling the results uh, on, 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 on races up and down the ballot. There's a possibility of um, taking things to the court and turning, you know, re relying on decisions that are not good decisions. There's a possibility that state legislatures take certain actions into their own hands. There's even the possibility as Rosa has raised here, the possibility that the House of Representatives takes certain things in their own hands, or the President of the United States takes certain things in their own hands. And when I hear all that, David, my mind begins to boggle because it's like, where do I look? Yeah. How do how what do I how do I know to trust things in my state or federally? What you know, what, you know, which is the you know to use a Jack London phrase that a military officer I used to know used to use all the time. What's the wolf closest to the sled? Mm. 
Um, so to, to each, I want the same question to each of you. How do we sort through all of this to make good judgments about what's actually happened and, and, and engage ourselves as citizens? Well, my first point, David, is that this boggling of the mind that you describe is exactly the boggle that Vladimir Putin wants you to have. And he's probably thinking, if I've gotten through to Rothkopf, and I've probably gotten through to a good part of the U.S. population, because the whole purpose of these is not necessarily to go support Donald Trump. I actually think he probably views Trump as unable at this point to bring him what he wants the most, which is sanctions relief. Um, it's not really to knock down uh, Joe Biden, who I think he probably understands pretty well at this point. It's to make us question whether or not this vaunted system that we always held over him and other authoritarian states is all it's cracked up to be. And the very fact that you're asking the question takes you a good way toward what Putin's goal was. The second is that this effort to understand the difference between the foreign and the domestic threats um, does two things. One, it probably overemphasizes the foreign threats a little bit now because we've been thinking about that and discussing it endlessly since 2016, as we have seen many domestic threats come up. And the second is it misses the interplay between the two. As we discussed a few weeks ago, if you're working at the Internet Research Agency or you're working from home at the Internet Research Agency these days, your job's a lot easier than it was four years ago because you take the president's statements about mail-in ballots or rigged elections and you re-broadcast them and amplify them and you don't actually have to sit around and come up with original stuff, right? And that's basically what we've seen the IRA doing, according to intelligence officials. Um, the second thing that we've learned out here is that as the foreign groups do this, it sometimes gets amplified by political actors in the United States to bolster the president's argument that this will be rigged. And um, so what I'm worried about right now is sort of breaking that cycle between foreign and domestic that can talk us into the perception hacks we're so worried about for next time. That does not diminish any of the other things we've discussed here uh, that are real vulnerabilities, all of which have to be locked down. I just think we're looking at them with such care right now that the chances that we'll be able to call them out are pretty high. Whether the chances are also high that the justice system will work with them correctly is, is another question. Okay, Jennifer, same question to you before you tase your children. Um, so unfortunately, it, Putin is not responsible for the remote access software that America's two largest vendor, well, certainly its largest, 44% of US election equipment they put in 300 jurisdictions and then lied about. Um, they're not responsible for us, you know, falling down on the job and not doing manual audits. I am no fan of Putin. I'm very worried that he can hack our infrastructure too. But I think asking the question is actually good because we as individuals need to understand our election system better so that we as individuals can guard it. Um, I do have a project at Jenny Cohn One. You can go to learn about it called Photo Finish at protectourvotes.com where we are photographing precinct results and comparing them to reported results. And there are a number of other projects happening. Transparency is the answer and we don't have that and we need to fight for it for this election because as the um, internationally renowned election security experts likes to say, and he is correct, 
the whole point of um, of a democracy is to have a peaceful transition of power, and you cannot assume that that's going to happen unless the supporters of the losing party are convinced that the election was free and fair, and that requires transparency. And as someone who works for the Colorado Secretary of State posted this on Twitter. His name is Dwight Shellman. And he said, I've been privileged to work under four secretaries of state from different points on the political spectrum, all of whom were, are exactingly honest. But in my opinion, evidence and transparency yield public confidence in elections and outcomes. Honesty and integrity, though crucial, no longer suffice. And that is the answer. We just need to, um, if our candidates lose at the very least, we need to demand some transparency about the results because we didn't get those manual audits that should have been implemented everywhere, all down the ballot for this election. Rosa, got a minute, last word. Last word, please pray. <laughs> prayer is the answer, prayer is the answer well, to this. Well, even if you're, you know. If you're so, so, so you're paraphrase Reagan and paraphrase Reagan and, and Jennifer and, and come up with pray but verify? Pray but verify, yes, precisely. Um, and if you're an atheist, that's cool too. Find your favorite poems, you know, poke little needles into the appropriate voodoo dolls, uh, you know, check out the chicken entrails, the tea leaves, throw salt over your left shoulder, uh, uh, cross your fingers. Those are my final words. Thank you. Does not sound highly scientific, Rosa. I think it is highly scientific. It is highly scientific. I have I have done extensive research. Well, I, whatever you've done, let me say, by all <laughs> means, follow Rosa's advice. But read what David is writing about, and follow Jennifer at the various projects that she's just talked about and on you Twitter. You can combine the chicken entrails with reading David's articles, etc. I have, that's often I you can often, actually even wrap the chicken entrails in yeah, the, see, our, our print edition. All yeah. fits together beautifully. Yeah, I, I should I should point out, David, that <laughs> ever since you said that the Iranian things sounded like they were from Borat, uh -huh. I've been hearing this entire conversation in Borat accents. <laughs> you know, and, and and then I then I was looking at your article here in the New York Times, and they seem to have a sense of humor about that as well. Because next to the article, two out of the three editors' picks are stories about Borat. See, um, it's, it, there is a giant conspiracy. Yeah. Well, I keep getting these emails that you know say things like, "Hello, Miss Rosa. I am from Kyrgyz main public radio. Wish to interview urgently." And I'm like, <laughs> I'm I'm now having trouble distinguishing between the real and the fake. Yeah, well, if they begin jagshimash, don't don't <laughs> don't don't listen any any further. Um, seriously, follow what Jennifer is doing. Follow what David is doing. Follow the work that Rosa has been doing on this. There are too many moving parts, and whereas Vladimir Putin may want us to be concerned about all of those moving parts. Uh, as Jennifer pointed out, not being concerned about them would be naive. There's too much evidence to suggest that people will fiddle with aspects of these results. It is in the interests of too many people to fiddle with aspects of these results. And the kind of transparency and verifiability that Jennifer is calling for is essential. Thanks to each of you. Thank you, Jennifer. Thank you, Rosa. Thank you, David. Uh, thanks to everybody for listening. Uh, we've got 
many more episodes coming up uh, in the in the run up to the election, which is just a few days away and immediately afterwards making sense of it. Uh, so join us and find out what we're doing at the dsrnetwork.com. We did an interesting podcast just yesterday uh, talking about um, my new book. And uh, Ed Luce hosted it, and we had questions from readers all around the world, and uh, uh, it was great. And uh, I, I encourage you to listen to it, not because it was about my new book, um, which you could buy wherever you buy books, um, but because Ed did a great job as a host, and the questions were good, and the discussion was good. So go there, listen to that, listen to other things, and we'll talk to you all again soon. In the meantime, try to stay healthy. Bye-bye.